0: Welcome to the second episode of the podcast series on decolonization of the IRO Curriculum and African Politics by the African Politics Club and AMFM. My name is Jana and this is Rick. Hello. And this is a three-part podcast issue in which we examine the IRO Curriculum, how to decolonize it, and giving room to African politics specifically.
1: In the last episode, we focused on the student perspective on decolonization and the role of the African continent in our curriculum. Today, we want to pass on the microphone to the other end of the line.
0: We will be talking to our own professor, Matthew Longo, teaching contemporary political philosophy, and Professor Adikea Adebacho, who is the director of the Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conversation at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. They will share their views on how the abstract concept of decolonization is shaped through values underlying political philosophy and why it is so relevant to study the African continent in all its diversity. And now we will talk to Professor Adikeya Adebacho. He is originally from Nigeria and previously worked as executive director at the Center for Conflict Resolution in Cape Town and served in UN missions in South Africa, the Western Sahara and Iraq. In our conversation, we focus on African politics and the world of international relations and the ways in which the African continent situates itself in international relations.
1: So you have studied in in Oxford, in the UK and in Germany, and now you work in South Africa. Um, Do you think the way international relations is studied in Europe is different from how it's done in in, in Africa?
2: Well... I think that a lot of the people teaching international relations in Africa have been trained in the West, either in Europe or the U.S. Not all of them, of course. Uh, And the whole field of international relations obviously emerged from the United States. And apart from training in Oxford, I also trained in the U.S. at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in Boston, which is one of the professional international relations schools. Um, So I think what we try to do is, of course, I also studied at the University of Ibadan in my country, Nigeria. So I think what we try to do is to use the best of both worlds. You know, Chinyu Achebe, the Nigerian novelist, talked about post-colonial citizens finding themselves with two arms after independence and Edward Said the Christian Palestinian Arab is also a very good example of that where you try to merge the best of knowledges and epistemologies in Africa and the West it's not like you're championing only an African canon or only a Western canon but you try to synthesize both but the important point is that Africa must be at the center of the knowledge production that you're doing. And it's also geographically the center of where you're examining. So your starting point must be Africa, and then you move out and use whatever knowledge is relevant for you. So that's really the the point and purpose.
1: In our previous episode of this podcast, we discovered that many students at our uh, university in Europe, in the Netherlands, are really eager to learn more about African politics, but that we don't see it really in our curriculum. And in terms of an understanding of world politics, what do you think students of international relations miss if their education doesn't pay enough attention to the African continent? Well, it's
2: not just Africa that you're missing. It's also... The Middle East, I mentioned Edward Said, for example. It's very important that when you study about the Middle East, you don't just look at Western scholars, uh, some of whom Said dismissed as Orientalists, but you actually look at some of the scholars in those regions as well. And I think that is what is missing. For example, it was at Oxford that I discovered a Kenyan scholar called Ali Mazrui. And he's kind of like the doyen of Africa's international relations. You know, he's the most kind of senior representative of that pioneering generation from the 1960s who were writing about international relations. And, you know, in terms of on subjects like the OAU on peace in Africa, like he came up with the concept of Pax Africana which basically argued that Africans needed to make peace on their own continent through their own exertions. And he had concepts and ideas like continental jurisdiction, which basically argued that outsiders should stay out of Africa and let Africa be the primary arbiters of peace on their own continent. Um, And I think ideas like that are extremely important. You know, the book, let me just put up this book. Uh, There's a book that we produced in March 2020, which is called From Ivory Towers to Ebony Towers. And it's about 24 chapters. And it basically looks at curriculum transformation within South Africa. But then it looks comparatively at how in the 1960s, there was an Ibadan school of history that was created by African scholars. So the idea was to use oral sources to write the history of Africa from an African perspective, because before then, of course, it had been looking at Africa through European perspectives. So there were scholars like Adea Ajayi and Obaro Chime and Kenneth Dike, who basically pioneered this school of African studies. And then there was the Dar es Salaam School of African Political Economy in Tanzania. And Walter Rodney, who was actually from Guyana rather than Africa, but he he was teaching at the University of Dar es Salaam. Scholars like that and other East Africans basically pioneered this school. Most of them were Marxists. Uh, But they wanted to look at African political economy and history through a different lens. So histories of the slave trade, histories of colonialism. uh, You know, Walter Rodney's most famous book, of course, was How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And he looked at, even before Emmanuel Wallerstein, issues around of world systems, And how over five centuries of slavery and colonialism, basically, Africa was brought under European dominance as a kind of subsystem, producing primary products while importing manufactured goods. And he shows the dialectics of that. So those were the African schools that we looked at. There was also a school of literature in Kenya pioneered by people like Ungugi wa which looked at African literature through African eyes. So instead of having an English department, which was what existed before, they insisted that you have to read African authors and go back and look at African indigenous literature while also studying English literature. And then just very quickly, because we're Pan-African outfit, and we look at the diaspora and not just continental Africa, we looked at two schools of thought in the U.S. One of them was the Atlanta School of Sociology, which people like W.E.B. Du Bois pioneered. And um, we also looked at the Howard School of International Relations, which from the 1920s and 1930s had people like Eric Eric Williams, uh, the Trinidadian. Um, Merce Tate, um, and others, Ralph Bunch, basically looking at the history of slavery and imperialism through African and black studies uh, eyes, and trying to basically come up with their own theories on imperialism and other issues. So I'm just giving you some concrete examples of how one might study international relations or politics using different lenses and reading different authors but i think my main point that i want to emphasize is that there must be a synthesis it mustn't just be a ghettoization of African studies and only reading African scholars and you know analyzing African schools of thought try to look at it within the broader context as well so that the theories are at least building and learning from each other.
1: So if we want to uh, incorporate these uh, different perspectives, reading these African authors, that's the key thing to do. Or are there also some other specific steps that universities can take to have these these broad perspectives in their curriculums?
2: Well, I think reading African authors is important, um, but also reading African critiques of Western international relations. So some of the people I mentioned, like Ali Mazrui of Kenya, and Edward Said, the Palestinian, or Chinyo Achebe, the Nigerian, those are all, you know, prominent intellectuals in the third world that have critiqued how the West has analyzed and looked at Africa or the Arab world. it's important that you read those theories as well as those authors as well.
1: Well, you wrote a book that's called uh, The Curse of Berlin, referring to the Conference of Berlin of 1884 and 1885, in which European powers split up the African continent for colonial exploitation. And to what extent do you think this tragic history does still shape how Europe or the West uh, and Africa relate to each other?
2: I, I think absolutely massively. I mean, the reason why I wrote the book was because I just kept thinking, and it was dedicated to Ali Mazrui, whom, as I said, is one of my intellectual mentors. I kept thinking about how the African state system had been shaped over five centuries by the european slave trade and the european colonialism in this case i focus mostly on european colonialism but the fact that africa has 16 landlocked countries is not an accident of history it's a deliberate uh act of european powers basically sharing out the continent and effectively africa's geopolitics reflected the compromises of these European countries so that groups that didn't belong to each other were lumped together in these artificial nation states and so the, and Africans were not consulted you know there was not a single African representative at the conference of Berlin uh, where they were basically making all of these decisions on the future of Africa and that conference has shaped the politics, the geography, the economics, uh, and everything else, even the culture of Africa in ways that have been enormous. And so that's the point and the purpose of trying to draw the links between what happened in Berlin. And then I tried to look at the analysis from what I call Africa's quest for the political security, and unity kingdom. So Africa has tried through the African Union and ECOWAS and SADC and different sub-regional organizations to kind of establish its own mechanisms for keeping peace. But in the end, it's had to rely heavily on the United Nations, which deploys about 85% of its peacekeepers to African cases. Uh, And then I look at the whole issue of hegemony, which is leadership. And Nigeria and South Africa have tried, since they account for over 60% of the economy in Western, Southern Africa, to play a leadership role within Africa. But that leadership role has been frustrated by lack of capacity on the part of those two countries. And also the fact that their external actors, like France and the U.S. in particular, intervened militarily in Africa. So that is also a kingdom that Africa has not achieved. And I also look at the Afro-Asian coalition in world politics because, of course, Africa and Asia fought together for their independence from the 1950s. And they supported each other at the United Nations. So I look at all of those struggles, but all of that history is shaped fundamentally and structurally by the conference in Berlin, which Bismarck oversaw in 1884 to 85. And you can't really assess Africa's history without looking at that.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned how the relation between Europe and Africa has been very much shaped, the present relation even very much shaped by its colonial history. And do you think, there's hope for the future do you think future generations of africans and europeans will be better able to build a partnership that's more equal instead of one that's so very much based on the colonial past of the two continents
2: um i think there there is some hope you know for example the european union even though it talks about partnership and wanting to move from an aid-dependent relationship with Africa, it's still very much in the driving seat because it has a lot more resources um, than Africa and it tends to work in such a way that it shapes plans and then unfortunately imposes it on other regions, not just Africa, even in its relationship with the Mediterranean, with the Arab world, it does tend to work like that. But I think there are some signs. For example, over the last two decades, the European Union has provided about 90% of the funding for the African Peace Facility, which has assisted peacekeeping missions in places like Somalia uh, or in places like Burundi or in places like the DRC or Mali. You know, and that is a positive thing that one can look at. You know, there are still some complications like the EU not just supporting its own priorities, but supporting priorities that have been defined by the Africans. But I would say that that is a positive sign. Migration, of course, is a big issue in your country and all across Europe. You know, people are very worried about the irregular migration of Africans when they see them on boats across the Mediterranean. Uh, And that is something that is very worrying for Europe. But what what we keep arguing in Europe, in Africa rather, is that migration can be seen as developmental. It need not be seen as a security threat to Europe. And ways must be found to stop demonizing African migrants. You know, there's a kind of racist Afrophobia in much of the European media and even among the publics. You know, you see a lot of right wing parties basically using immigration uh, in very negative ways. Uh, and I think trying to provide education and trying to have a more informed dialogue about migration challenges. And how migrants are also contributing to European economies, you know, during COVID, we saw the importance of essential workers uh, who were needed to basically do a lot of the work that other people could not do. And a lot of those emergency workers happened to be migrants, you know, the National Health Service in the UK, for example, which left the European Union, uh, a large percentage of it maybe 30 to 40% nurses doctors etc are migrants so we also have to emphasize the positive aspects of african migration and other migration to contribute to the prosperity of the european union but there is hope in those areas if we can make those dialogues more widespread
1: you mentioned COVID-19 already this is maybe a topic in which there's less hope um, I don't know but the global distribution of COVID-19 vaccines I think that might be one of the most pressing examples of inequality between the global north on the one hand and the global south and in particular Africa what effect do you think this will have on relations between the two continents Africa and Europe
2: um, I think that The COVID-19 has exposed what I would call, a lot of people call it vaccine nationalism, but I think it's actually vaccine apartheid. You know, there's a separation on the basis of race. Um, And I think that there has been a total lack of solidarity in this particular uh, field. It's not just the Europeans, the Americans, and others have also taken care of themselves. But slowly, as Europe and America gets vaccinated, I think there are now at least more constructive conversations going on about how to, for example, contribute to the crisis that's going on in India or Brazil, and how to make vaccine distribution more equitable. But despite all the um, rhetoric about wanting an equal partnership. I think what incidents like COVID expose is the instinct to be selfish, to take care of yourself first, and basically not to be empathetic or show solidarity towards the plight of Africa or poorer developing countries. So I think that issue is there, and one can't really ignore it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, moving beyond relations between Europe and Africa, you wrote extensively about the United Nations as well. Currently, there is no single permanent member from the African continent on the Security Council. Um, do you think this this imbalance prevents the world from addressing common security challenges?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think the most simple argument is that you know there are three non-permanent members from africa that rotate on the security council out of the 15. but the problem is that sometimes you have countries from africa on the security council who are not able to they don't have the capacity in terms of their foreign ministries to be able to cover the topics in a way that contributes to peacekeeping and peace building the other problem that happens is that some of these countries are small and weaker countries. And so they can be easily manipulated by the bigger powers. You know, the US and France can manipulate certain countries on the Security Council. And so they don't necessarily vote in a way that's going to assist Africa itself. So what we're arguing is that it's very important that your bigger countries like Nigeria, South Africa, and Ethiopia can play a consistent role on the United Nations Security Council because those countries cannot be bullied as easily and their voices cannot be ignored as easily when it comes to African security issues. And there have been some positive steps taken by African countries, for example, the three African countries now report to the whole Africa group at the United Nations in New York regularly, and every, also every month or so, the chair of the three African members on the Security Council that are rotating discusses regularly with the chair of the 15 member African Union Peace and Security Council in Addis Ababa to make sure that whatever decisions are taken by the African Union are then fed into the discussions that are going on in New York on the UN Security Council. So there have been some innovations and Africans trying to organize themselves better But I think the point still remains that Africa is the only region, along with Latin America, that does not have veto power. You know, the US, Russia, China, France, and Britain are still the only countries that have veto power on the UN Security Council. And France and Britain may have been great powers in 1945, but 75 years later, they are no longer great powers. So the Security Council needs to be restructured in a way that reflects the world of 2021, not the world of 1945. And I think if that's done, Africa needs to be given veto power and more seats so that its more able powers are able to sit on the Security Council and have more of an impact. That's really the argument.
1: do you think that is likely to happen that these these countries that are currently permanently on the on the council will uh, allow other countries african countries to to join them uh, on the council giving away power basically
2: um i think it's not going to happen anytime soon because we've been talking about reform of the security council for a long time you know it was its members were extended from 11 to 15 in 1965. And since then, there hasn't really been any reform in terms of the structure. You know, they kind of tinker around with the working methods and things like that, but there hasn't really been any. But I believe that at some point, there is going to be pressure on these countries to reform, it nearly happened in 2005 under the Ghanaian UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. Uh, And what you need, you need two thirds of the members of the 193 states, that's about 128 members. And then you need no veto from any of the five permanent members. And that's not an easy thing to do because as you rightly noted, you're asking countries to give up power and countries don't willingly give up power but i think in the end if enough pressure builds up it will eventually happen it may not happen anytime soon but eventually the united nations if the gap between the reality of the real world and how it's working becomes so big then it becomes illegitimate. It loses its legitimacy. And I don't think the UN wants to do that. So eventually, I think the pressure for reform will build up and some kind of reform will have to happen. I
1: have one final question. Um, what advice would you give to students listening to this podcast who are passionate about working towards a fair representation of the African continent and the rest of the world? Um, be it in academia, diplomacy, or another aspect of of international relations?
2: Um, I think the important thing is just to keep, listen to Africans and what they want, you know, because you can't also speak on behalf of people without knowing properly what their own specific interests are and then try to build bridges of solidarity you know whether it's between the european union and africa or at the united nations security council or even civil society which is extremely important you know european civil society can be a force for good in changing opinions about migration from africa you know so i think the important thing for me is just to maintain solidarity listen to africans read what they have to say and let's have a dialogue rather than you know let's have a real constructive dialogue rather than a dialogue of the death
1: we will now talk to professor matthew longo in an interview on philosophical political thought and how professors and students can approach decolonization and how we can formulate it based on philosophical criteria of diversity itself and bestness.
3: Thank you for inviting me. So my name is Matthew Longo. I teach political philosophy, but I actually also do quite a little bit of my own empirical work uh, focused on, just on the question of the border.
4: So we're gonna talk about decolonization today how did you find your way into the topic of decolonization in your academic career? And what does decolonization mean to you?
3: I love the topic of decolonization because I think it's important. My entry point was probably Fanon. I think that Fanon really changed my intellectual worldview. And I think that Fanon is the one who really showed me why, why maybe actually violence is, is important, revolutionary violence. Um as an antidote to certain kinds of issues that are structural, that will never be smoothed out by simply thinking you can create better kinds of systems. Because he forces us to ask what I think is the most important question, which is what kinds of systems are actually themselves so um, structurally either perverted or weak or insufficient, that simply making them better through reform is insufficient. Right? When is revolution necessary? Because the curriculum is a very specific point, which is that we have, in my particular world of, of political philosophy, a uh, exceptional lack of, of anybody who's not white. But it's true that until you force academics at this point to add people of color, it is all too easy and all too normal to completely avoid doing so. And I think that that's really sad, in part because we would all be better reading different kinds of diversity voices, but also because they're just terrific arguments, right? So obviously diversity is valuable unto itself. I'm happy to say, even if they were not as good texts, it's important for the sake of diversity to include them. But I happen to think they're also unbelievably good texts, right, so I don't even think there's even an issue, but I do think that we're at the point that we were probably 20 years ago with female authors, as we are now with people of color, which is that people just don't know enough to even evaluate where they should fit in the syllabus.
4: Um, as you already also said, this is like a very specific part of decolonization and you're coming from this, of course, big t- topic of philosophy. How would you say is it possible to rediversify diversify a system that you cannot really break down? Um, because we are in this university institution, so there's not a lot of... Revolution there, I would say. Um, how do you see that?
3: Yeah, so I think that there's the there's the two ways, right? The ways that that, that you can do it when you're thinking as a faculty member is, uh, I guess, the most obvious, which is you can just put it on the syllabus. It's not that hard. If you're thinking from the vantage of the student, I think there's the there's the good answer and the bad answer, right? So informal ones would put a lot more onus on the students. So, for example, all of you are going to write. Um, bachelor's theses, I have no reason to think every one of you couldn't write a bachelor's thesis that focuses on an author or a set of authors or debates of brown people of of color, right? So you are all roughly given a choice. And it is totally also incumbent on students to make those choices, right? To say, I want to take these particular books, these angles, and in particular, ideally, teach me. There's tons of great stuff out there that you can also teach Me and then it becomes a little more reciprocal, right? It's not just me putting fan on a second year lecture syllabus, it's also you uh, putting some secondary source I'd never heard of into my inbox, and uh, we move forward that way. That's the ideal, and all that's informal.
4: I do believe that the perspective of philosophy does add to the debate that is so common nowadays. So, what would you say are the main philosophical claims that underlie? the debate of decolonization because it's arguably also very politicized.
3: Yeah, it's a very tough, that's a tough thing to answer. If you want to pit the debate, the general debate is A, whether diversity is an end unto itself, right? I think that's a that's the A part. And the mm-hmm. B is about the question of bestness. So we can talk about them separately. So the question diversity is an end in itself, I think is something most of us uh, intuitively believe but probably have not thought a ton about what that means, right? So we probably believe diversity is important because, I mean, who's against diversity? It sounds like an idiot would say that, right? But of course you can ask diversity of what? Let's say you're teaching a class on on religion and you can't just have it be about uh, Christians and Jews in Europe. Okay, fine. So it should also include Islam. Agreed. But maybe that's insufficient. Maybe that actually you should include other great world religions, right? Like Buddhism. Fine. But, uh, okay, there's five or six major world religions. You had Hinduism, and et cetera. But you do ultimately draw the line, right? There are probably hundreds of things that could be classified as religion. And so you can't talk about all hundred. So whether you know it or not, you are drawing the line somewhere. You are saying some diversity is too much. And so the problem is that the actual debate isn't diversity or no diversity. It's where do you stop? Uh, draw the line of diversity. When do you stop thinking that extra actually makes things worse? Because if you were to not just talk about the five major religions in this stupid example, but 20 or 50 religions, of which there are literally thousands if you count small ones, right? Uh, what you end up doing is having a lot less time to talk about the three big ones, right? So you're choosing. And so I do think that there's a question of how much diversity is even worthy of being discussed and by what standard do we think it is worthy, right? There's a big issue about diversity. And I think that that's one of the big debates. And I think the second debate is just about bestness, which is that another kind of argument says, not that we should be undiverse or that we should be diverse, but that we should be basically uh, diversity blind. Mm -hmm. We should just pick the 10 best books and read them. And if they happen to all be dead white men, so what? And I think that that's a real position. It's a real argument. I don't particularly hold this myself. and But it has to be discussed, right? It has to be debated. And I think the reason you would give for why bestness is not a great standard is in part because how do you even know what best is, given we haven't read any of this writing? Right? I mean, you know, there are a lot of the great thinkers, whether it's from the third world, or thinkers who are of color in the first world or in the West, whatever system you want to uh, artificially demarcate the globe in some stupid way, whatever you want to say about it, um, uh, how could you even begin to say bestness is a standard when you don't have a complete view of the subject? And so part of my attitude about this subject is that a lot of the reason we get we should be reading more people of color is in part that your generation, those of you that want to think and write and maybe pursue scholarship, whatever you end up wanting to do, um, uh, further expand the circle, right? So that over time, it expands and expands and expands, meaning it's easy to teach Fanon. Fanon's a genius. Like, no one doesn't think Fanon's a genius. He's one of the greatest writers of all time. Like, no, there's not like a big Fanon isn't worth it club, right? It's about who's beyond that. And I think that that's, so a lot of the point is to push people just to read more and more more authors they don't know so that um, in the nearer future, let's say, you have a better idea even of what best is.
4: And, and that's the ideal, of course. But I feel like as a student, I go through the university catalog and I am very aware that most of the people, uh, that I or most of the publications I find, they are not um, diverse in the of diversity strive for, and you picked up that we always have to draw a line in diversity, but I feel like a lot of us ask, where do we start? We have limited time, limited amount of text we can read. How did you come about to find more diverse text? What is sources we can pick up on? Where can we start with diversity instead of deciding where to draw a line?
3: Yeah, I think that there's a whole, um, the, the question of where you start to read is, of course, uh, in anything, the hard one, right? I mean, if I told you now you should start studying biology, your first question is, okay, where do I start reading? Right, like, that, That's a natural beginning. And I think it's fair to say that that is on teachers to offer things. You know, I don't, you know, for example, in my class, I only gave um, this sort of ending, this teasing about fanon in the end. Uh, you could have a whole class just on the subject, but also what I could have done is given a, a reading list. I could have done more to say for those interested in keeping reading read in this direction. So I think it's fair to also push yeah, the instructor to um, how to say it, to not not to put it on the syllabus but in a way give the student the tools to go beyond the syllabus, let's say. Think about what it would mean to teach that class. I should say, uh, you could teach that class the way I taught it, which is to say, let me show you someone who's really intelligent just to, to tease you, to make you think about something you haven't thought about. But of course, the other way to teach it is more survey-like, to say, rather than, here's a deep look at phenomenon, rather give you 10 or 15 citations of people who might be arguing something. And I also could have done that. You know, I don't tend to like to teach that way. I tend to like to go deeper into people. That's why we read a lot of like a rant in Berlin. um, But I certainly could have, and in fact, maybe that's a nice um, idea, either for next year, uh, or just to put on the syllabus, here would be 10 or 15 authors, you know, the bad answer, uh, but an important one is that if you really want to start with a subject as complicated as, uh, 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 you know, the political thought of people of color, I would probably start with an edited volume, right? So, for example, I know that students don't like that, but academics like those things. Like, like here's a volume that just puts together a collection of great authors, and you can start that way. I know one that came out last year, I've not read yet, but I'd love to read Um, that's called, um, it's just an edited volume on African-American political thought. So it's a tiny subset. It's just looking at African-Americans. It's a tiny version of the field, but with the attitude about political philosophy and um, with the focus on political philosophy. And I should look at that resource. And I'm sure when I get to it, I will find five, 10 pieces that Mm -hmm. will be perfect fits. So it also, I should, it's good that the student also pushes me to read more. But
4: how would you evaluate the social sciences in a very broad way? How visible or not are trying to make that move to be more thoughtful in their choices of sources and maybe also differ from their traditional ones and go more into critical thought that is more recent and and, and less white, male, and
3: so on? No, I would not say everyone is doing this or even a majority is doing this, but I would say that the unfortunate thing, and I think it's unfortunate um, from any perspective, but especially your generation of young people, is that this stuff takes a lot of time. And I think that you probably, it requires uh, people like me, who are um, uh, not young compared to the student body, but young for the faculty, let's say, like uh, younger professors, who came up in a world in which this is already a subject I think it's normal for my generation already to be talking in this way. I also think that the number, and this is a a very statistically uh, provable thing, um, but the number of people of color who are professors is changing and getting more and more every year. And it just seems like a question that's going to be forced. And I would be very surprised if we don't ultimately find ourselves in a generation or two looking at people of color, the way that now we talked about earlier in terms of putting women on the syllabus, where now it's kind of obvious, like it's not you don't even think about it, it's Just because it just has to do with more people of color entering university and teaching and writing and writing articles and writing books. Mm-hmm. But that's a slow process, and that's really frustrating for people, especially who are young and energetic, who would like change immediately.
4: Especially with Black Lives Matter now, of course, there's so much traction going into that debate. And also we talk so much about Western and Eurocentric. Now you have taught on both sides, in Europe and and the U.S. Would you say there is a difference in approaching the topic and is there something where you say this is what they're doing better or what you would take away from that as like an advantage or or, a nice way to go about it, which you would like the other side to do
3: as well? There is a difference. So in the U.S., because of the uh, incredibly uh, uh, difficult racial politics in America, Uh, the subject of race is spoken about much more in the universities. We're bracketing, we're tweeting only about universities right now. It's impossible not to have a whole department of African-American studies in every university, nevertheless, uh, cross-listed fields and so forth. It's just more likely that every class will talk about race. It's really in America unavoidable, whereas in Europe, you're more likely to talk about class mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the more critical thinkers in Europe. And I don't mean this in a good or bad way, just anecdotally, that, that critical thought in Europe is much more advanced about class than race, I find. Mm-hmm. And in America, it's much more advanced about race than class. And I think this has to do with a mixture of the horrible, bloody history of race in America that is is is. Uh, uh, the basis of everything, right? It's kind of it's an unavoidable fact. But also the kind of uh, attitude Americans have towards capitalism, which is much less critical than it probably should be. So in ways, it means that the kind of focus, the critical focus is a bit different. Whereas here, almost all the people that I know and that I read in Europe that are very, what I consider great critical minds, are more likely to focus on class. And race is an issue that when it comes up, yeah, it's just not as much of the focus.
4: Would you say that it helps to talk about race more than it talks about class because it wouldn't neglect that topic?
3: I, no, I don't think anything is more important than the other. Ideally, you would teach the critical method and teach people to think critically about philosophical issues. Where they choose to apply it is up to them. And my guess is that that point is actually changing in Europe because increasingly in Europe, race is at the front of people's minds. And I think that when I say that, I mean when uh, not just your generation, the generation after you, the younger generations, come into a world um, that has already been shaped by, for example, Black Lives Matter. It's more likely in the press of their mind that someone a generation older than you in Europe, or two generations older than you in Europe, just didn't have the experience Mm -hmm. that race was a subject in the same way. So I hope it's changing.
4: And then for all these students who hope for a change, what is something you would tell them about how to approach maybe their academic career that's yet to come, or, or what is something you would like us to know about this topic with which you have been much more involved so far?
3: I think that the bottom line is the one that's probably annoying for me to say, but I have not say it anyways, which is that uh, your teachers are very, they're blips in your life, and uh, university is a very short period of your life, but you are you forever, and it's really incumbent on you to uh, read everything you can. I think teachers should give you the tools. And, but the ones that don't teach you about uh, these kinds of questions, ideally will at least to give you the tools so that you can read them on your own. And I hope that more people also teach them, of course. And I think there probably should be more ways to disseminate reading lists, for example, even from, on a formal level from the department, but ultimately, you know, graduate and be out in the world. And you will probably not be having teachers forcing you to read things. So it's kind of up to you. And I think that's the big point, which is that you take the tools the teacher gives you, even if they don't give you the diverse reading list, and then read around. And I do start with Fenon because he's a genius. I'm just kidding.
4: I feel like we all started enjoying kind of in the class. Yeah, I think that is all the questions we have for today. So thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: This leaves us with one more episode to go. After having listened to students and the ways in which these topics affect them, we have shifted our perspective towards academia in that field. This leaves us with one more part, the institutional, and a conclusion on how what we have learned, and what we can take away, can be put into practice.
1: We will look into that in episode 3, by talking to Light University's Diversity and Inclusivity Office, and finally combining all three parts to put together an answer on how to decolonize the IRA curriculum and create spaces for African perspectives.